Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mango Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer Spencer. Say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we are about midway through the season. I think we're just about exactly halfway of our review of Disney Plus's Mandalorian, a live action Star Wars story. And we are at chapter 12, The Siege. Spencer, I have my thoughts on this episode. I'm going to shock you here and add a brand new segment to this episode based on the events that we saw. But before we get to that, I want to hear your immediate reaction. What did you think? Chapter 12, The Siege, go. Eh. Eh. (laughs) It's the most most filler of filler of this season. I don't think it reaches quite some of the filler levels of the first season. And as an episode, it's fine. There's not much to talk about. It's really heavily action-focused. I thought some of the cinematography was well done. I think from a uh, you know a direct a directorial debut, Carl Weathers did pretty well with it. Um, but it was fine. I, I I don't have any. It's hard to talk much about an episode like this, which is clearly just trying to you know provide a bit of a bridge between two other episodes and not even really doing much of that. It's in there for padding. As, as a padding standpoint, it's Star Wars padding. It's John Favreau padding. That's not a bad thing. But it doesn't necessarily inspire much in the way of passion. Okay, all right. Well, let's just wrap it up. Uh, that was our coverage <laughs> of Chapter 12, The Siege. No, yeah, we're going we're gonna to move forward. We're going to do our standard episode. But I do agree that it is a bit of a filler episode. Although, there are a few things that do connect to the greater lore, the greater canon, um, and some things we need to talk about. And as such, Spencer... Um, we are going to go through our normal um, review of the episode. We're going to do a recap of the episode. I will lead that. We'll do best line of the episode. I alone am emperor best line of the episode. Not a lot to pull from here, but I will pick one. Then we have nostalgic moment of the episode that you, Spencer, will lead. And we have a brand new segment I'm instituting. Now, I am surprising you with this now. You had no advance warning. And it all. is going to be, oh my God, what just happened? Let's create a theory segment of the episode okay you catch that oh my god Uh, what just happened let's create a theory okay Uh, we've got options i think for that one here i've got one in mind in particular but if you want to add to it we certainly can before we get going let everybody know what's going on with a sister podcast mangum reads uh mangum reads uh i playing no role in the editing process for the episodes it often leaves me in a bit of a difficult position to say where we are in the release schedule but from my perspective, we have finished the Forward Collection. We're going to do a bit of a recap episode where, similar to other prior compilations we've gone through, we're going to compare each of the stories to a, a select dish of food, because for some reason that works for us, as well as discussing some things we liked, some things we didn't in the overall collection, and probably doing a bit of a ranking, which will be quite a bit of fun. From there, we'll move on to doing thrillers and mysteries, a la, a la Agatha Christie for the first time, which I'm really looking forward to. And then... We will be returning to Harry Potter as we start the next book, which for me will be the first time I've read Harry Potter in hardcover and print. Bridget went out and bought me some, bought me a whole collection for like a dollar from a, from a yard sale. So I'm looking forward to that, and I hope y'all will look forward to it too. Uh, yeah, and so whenever you're you're plugging Mangum Reads, um, just an idea. If you don't know what's going on, you always could just give like a hey, this is like what the what Mangum Reads is. You know what I mean? Uh, Okay, it is essentially a digital book club of where each week we recommend a different story or a different thing that we all go through and discuss together, both as a recap and going through themes, elements we liked, comparisons to other stories that we're quite fond of, all in a way that we hope you will enjoy with us, probably with a drink in hand, as we often have a drink pairing recommendation to join us too. 
Now, see, now I don't like that because that was like really good and that's probably going to get people to go listen. And the, re- the listenership of Mangum Reads is a little bit more than our pod right now. So, um, yeah, I'm not, in retrospect, not happy I did that. It's all, um, it's also, don't it's go also, listen to Mangum Reads. Don't listen it, to it. <laughs> no, I'm just it's, <laughs> it's also snobby liberal sville. It is the intellectual elite talking down to you at all times. It is one of those highfalutin cigar fill rooms where people make decisions that don't involve you that alter your life. As opposed to this podcast, which is the everyman, Spencer. We speak for the common man, the blue-collar worker, the lunch-pail guy, just the guy who grew up watching Star Wars, who happens to still be a fan, who's enjoying Disney Plus's Mandalorian. We're here for that audience. The forgotten Star Wars fan that has been left behind by a modern society that doesn't respect his interests and the nostalgia that motivates him. We are here to speak for you. Absolutely. And with that in mind, we go to the recap of Chapter 12, The Siege. We start in the recap uh, with a little bit of a, a previously on. I don't always talk about the previously ons, but this one I think is important. We see the character from the very first episode, um, a Mithral. This is a um, relatively new character. Spencer, um, did you did you know of the species Mithral before Mandalorian? This is the blue guy who had to evacuate his thorax. I had, I had heard of them before. Obviously, we haven't spent much time with them before. I think this is the closest thing we've had to a quote-unquote main character of this species previously. Yeah, and this is the guy who, you know, there was a bounty out for him. I took it to be a relatively small bounty. I don't think this guy committed, like, high crimes. Um, Meat and potatoes. Yeah, yeah. It was just, it was paying the bills for Mando. And he ended up putting the guy in carbonite because the guy got a little bit too frisky on the ship and saw Mando's weapons. So that's in the recap. We cut to actually the start of the episode. We start with the Razor's Crest. Mando is doing some repairs and he has enlisted the help of Baby Yoda. Very funny sequence here. Very, very funny sequence. I feel like this sequence is, I enjoyed it, but it's outside of what I originally thought the show was. Because now it's becoming, it's not just a buddy cop. It's almost like like a family comedy type thing with like a father and son. How many moments did you have either growing up or now? I mean, this is what this, this is one of the stories that reverses as you get older. Is I've, I've got so many memories as a kid of where I was helping my dad out with projects of where he would just give me instructions that would just be like background white noise to me in terms of my ability to understand them. And that disastrous thing. And now it's shifting to as an adult of where I'm now trying to advise them how they can set up their Chromecast or access their Amazon Prime account by phone. Oh, that's funny how it flips. Like a little um, little Cat Stevens there, how it flips. Very um, much so. Yeah. Uh, my, well, the memory for my dad is, um, uh, son, hold the flashlight while I do this. You're not holding the flashlight right. No, stop it. You're, you're fucking up the flashlight. Give me the goddamn flashlight. Get out. This is what I remember from my father. So uh, Mando's not quite that bad. <laughs> Spencer, can you give me, a, give me a two-inch wrench? No, it's a three-inch. Nope, that's a five. No, I'll just go get it. Thanks. It's like that kind of shit. <laughs> Mando is trying to get Baby Yoda to get the wire out, the red wire. No, no, the red wire, the red one. He's telling Baby Yoda, I need you to take the red wire. I need you to put it in where the blue wire was. But do not touch the red wire with the blue wire. It <laughs> no, no, took no, no, no. me 0.002 seconds after Mando said, do not touch the red wire to the blue wire to realize that Baby Yoda was, in fact, going to touch the red wire to the blue wire. It's exactly what he does. Woo! There's a bit of a spark. Um, doesn't seem to really hurt Baby Yoda, uh, but it does uh, get a little bit of a chuckle out of Baby Yoda <laughs> after he creates the big <laughs> the big noise in the reaction. And Mando ends it with, well, it was worth a shot. <laughs> it's one of those things where this is, again, the result of 
what was, I guess, a shoestring budget that he used for the, to try to convince that Mon Calamari to fix his ship, which has rendered it flyable, but not necessarily the most functional. And upon determining that, you know, he's not a mechanic and Baby Yoda is in no way able to assist him in this regard, they need to find a reasonable alternative so this thing doesn't, you know, come apart in the air as they go through space. Oh, indeed. We cut to Baby Yoda and Mando drinking some soup. Um, it's kind of, Mando is kind of removing his helmet here in order to drink the soup and he's doing it in front of Baby Yoda. Spencer, question for you. Do you think he always did that around Baby Yoda or do you think that his run-in with Bo-Katan, who really poo-pooed the idea that Mandalorians can't take their helmet off, influenced um, Mando's perception of the Mandalorian tradition and therefore is giving him a little bit of space to remove his helmet and eat in front of Baby Yoda? I'm not sure. I had a, I had a few different ideas on this. One... My first impression was that, well, I guess that we're kind of hearing almost like a pressure plate go whenever he drinks in some way. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's actually a feature in this helmet that allows him to drink without fully removing the helmet, which could make sense because we otherwise would see him not like wandering around with straws at all times. But I wasn't sure. Other possibility was like you said, that now maybe his philosophy's gotten a little bit more flexible with Bo-Katan. But I think maybe that's happen that would happen too early. While he's clearly able to now associate with Bo-Katan without murdering her, which seemed in his mind kind of the possibility he was pondering if she kept on pushing the issue. By the way, maybe he wasn't going to be able to, just spoiler alert for everybody, Mando, great fighter. I, I, I put money on him in most fights. He was not going to be able to kill Bo-Katan right there. He thought fully, he was. I fully, fully understand agree, but I think you would agree that the man's cocky enough that he might have tried. He thought he was. Oh, 100%. He 100% thought he had her. No way he could <laughs> Good luck with that. Uh, third possibility, though, and I'm curious to your thoughts about this, is that Baby Yoda is now part of his clan. They are technically, in some ways, Mandalorians now together. Do you think that in any way that leads to a certain flexibility in the rules? The only reason I say no is because he did tell IG-11, no living being has ever seen me that with my true. helmet off. And That's he did true. have a clan at one point. So I, I tend to think that, you know, the, the children of the Watch, which is what Bo-Katan you know, explained to Mando that he was and what, what cult he was involved in. Um, I think they were really strict about this. I, my guess here is that he was getting a little loose with it after Bo after the interaction with Bo-Katan, but we don't really know for sure. But that would mm -hmm. that's, that would be my vote. Well, we have seen him take off his helmet before. He has been willing to take off his helmet, but like you noted, it's just not in the presence of other people or where right. other people are, are watching. Because I think he did it when he was um, kind of flirting with that widow uh, back on the planet where we had the very, you know, seven samurai, magnificent seven. Yeah. The fight with the ATAT. -AT. Yeah. No, he did, but he, he did it as he was, he was looking out upon a field and nobody was with him. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Mando tells baby Yoda, they'll never make it to Corvus with the ship in the shape that it's in. So they are going to stop at our favorite planet other than Tatooine asterisk navarro we get we get a another navarro scene which I'm, i was kind of excited about um you know I, obviously when i this episode I, i'm gonna do a little spoiler alert not spoiler but a little um behind the scenes here for you spencer the friday morning that this episode debuted i think i started watching it at like 4 a.m <laughs> because i thought we were gonna get the, the ahsoka episode because how disappointed last, were you i was a little disappointed not gonna lie but my consolation prize was going back to Navarro, which I thought was pretty cool. Well, but I was fired up for this episode because I thought Ahsoka Tan we were getting. We don't get Ahsoka Tan this episode. Spoiler. It's also fun now to see Navarro from orbit now that we have a better understanding of how the planet works and to see the lava lines that kind of crisscross this world. Yeah, that's true. That was a pretty cool shot. And, it, it, you know, the attention to detail in this show is great because that gets established, right, in the, um, the last two episodes of season one. And then they carry that over here. 
that this is a very interesting blasted landscape that makes up this world that's got little habitable segments in it. And we land here, and we have two old friends that are there waiting to greet him. And we cut to a scene that really makes me want to buy a lot more Beyond Meat than I normally buy. Um, it is some terrible scene of creatures. I don't know what... Do you know what species these, these folks are? The Do ones with the know. big like horn and like, almost oh, like a rhino uh, horn in front of their nose? It's almost like a baboon butt for their mouths. They're called Aqualish. Aqualish, yeah. Aqualish, okay. Shout out to you for knowing that. All right, point to Spencer uh, for this episode. Aqualish, and they are trying to get some kill some sort of rodent. And the rodent is terrified and seems pretty smart. And then the marshal comes in. Um, who's the marshal? It's Cara Dune. Cara getting her Seth Bullock on and deciding to actually go legit again after sometime as an outlaw. She comes in and kicks everybody's ass pretty quickly. One thing I want to point out, they gave her some pretty cool MMA moves to do in this sequence, which I thought was a nice crossover. Again, Favreau loves himself some fighting. He loves himself some wrestling, some fighting, some hand-to-hand combat. And we get to see Cara Dune, you know, uh, Gina Carano have a blast just wrecking shop with these guys. I've come to believe that Favreau just seems to like every single thing I like. Spirit animals, which yeah, I, well, I think I'm. I think he's he's my vote for uh, emperor of all entertainment. If we ever have to elect one, but yeah, um, Cara Dune. Um, now she's got the she's got the badge on Spencer. She's not going to take it off. She yeah. is the marshal uh, here in Navarro, and at the end um, of her kicking ass and taking names and saying a few little corny lines. More on that later in the episode. Um, the rodent is very, very thankful for Kara's assistance, which I thought was pretty cute. And she feeds it. I think it's even called a lava meerkat. Just to give you an impression of what the kind of species this is. And I, one thing I really liked about this episode, and th- this made me, it put in mind something the show's been doing a lot in general, is the show's willingness to use puppetry. The willingness to use, you know, yeah. dolls, physical objects, mm-hmm. rather than CGI, the way so many other shows, and particularly Star Wars lately, has been doing. Sure. And how fun of a throwback that is. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I thought this rodent was really cool. It actually kind of looked like a Jim Henson type rodent, where the, the head it's was bobbing. The head was really bobbing a lot to show um, personality. I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just obviously the scene is just meant to show that Kara is. Um, she has a little bit of control over her her little slice of Navarro right now. Uh, okay, we're now now that you've described it as a Jim Henson road. I'm calling it Rizzo going forward. Thank you for that. Rizzo, it's Rizzo. There we go. I like it. Cut to Mando flying um, to Navarro. We get a minor version of Mando's music here. Um, it, it just appeared to me to be uh, Mando's like that thing, but in a minor mm-hmm. key, which I thought was pretty cool and I appreciated. Uh, Mando lands and his ship is busted. I mean, oh, they rough. they take great pains to show that that thing is flimsy. There is parts hanging off. Apollo Creed and Kara are there to meet him. Apollo immediately notes that um, his ship is just a POS. Uh, Mando exits the ship with Baby Yoda um, and asks Apollo how his credit is in Navarro. I would venture to say, Spencer, that his credit is better on Navarro than in any planet in the galaxy. Probably number two would be Tatooine. Given given that we're working under the assumption that it was indeed Apollo Creed that now gave him all the money that he presently has, because we have no other explanation for where it came from, yes, this is a place that clearly owes him, and that debt is still in no way been sufficiently paid. Apollo um, tells us, yeah, go ahead. And just on your point, I was looking at the cop- copy of the transcript for the episode, and the lines for this section as the ship is trying to land are just 
alarm beeping, alarm stops, alarm beeping, alarm stops, razor crest sputtering, metallic creaking. That's the stage directions <laughs> for all that. That's a pretty darn spot on for what we saw. Then Apollo tells his people to fix the ship and greets Baby Yoda. Apollo appears to really genuinely like, or I would even venture to say love Baby Yoda right now after the whole Baby Yoda saved his life after being bitten by a poison pterodactyl scene that we got in season one. Um, Spencer, did you get the same impression that like oh. the warmth that Apollo would... Because Apollo, Apollo Creed's character here um, is very much the slimy bounty hunter like head guy who, who, mm-hmm. can, who can put on airs. I think this was genuine, though. Oh, yeah. And he's wearing the robes and wearing the symbol of an official magistrate now. He's essentially claimed dominion over this world with all the official titles associated with it. But sure. on your on your point, the man has given off some mad grandfather vibes now. He's got the white beard. <laughs> he's acting good, like, oh, yeah. is, 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 my, is my son treating you well? How are you doing? It is very legitimately affectionate. He's very happy to see it. And he's acting like he's going to go take Baby Yoda off to give him all the presents that he's been saving him for him since his birthday. That is exactly, yeah. Have you been treating him good? Have you been treating you good? Yeah, that sort of move. Um, yeah, so shout out to, to, that was a good call. Um, he's getting his grandfather on. Kara, Apollo, and Mando walk into the city and Apollo comments on Mando's ship being busted. Mando explains he had a run-in with the New Republic. Okay, kind of true. Kind oh, of come true. on. You had well, a physical run-in with an ice spider. That's what happened to your exactly. ship. Exactly. That. Yeah, I, I thought it was a little bit of a stretch to, to blame the New Republic here for the state of his ship. I mean, yeah, he had a he had a little bit of a run-in with New Republic, but it was Baby Yoda's voracious appetite that got his ship busted by a fucking ice spider big as hounds. Yes. And I mean, Apo- Go ahead. No, no, I agree. <laughs> and Apollo says they should leave, talking about the New Republic, they should leave the Outer Rim alone if the Empire couldn't settle it. What makes them think they can? Um, well, Apollo, novel theory here. Maybe they think they're better than the Empire? You know, throw it out of guess. I like the theories that you come out with, unsupported as they may be, but I like the basis that you're coming from. What a fucking dumb thing to say, Apollo. Like, yeah, fucking, they think they're better than the Empire. That's why they think they can settle it. That's why well, they took down the Empire to begin with. It may be a bit of a personal grudge, too. We don't know who he was a disgraced magistrate of, but it's perfectly possible, given his age, that it was the old Republic. So you may have a bit of a grudge about the idea of establishing a a Republic leadership again out in the area. I like that theory because there's a little bit of evidence to support that theory later in the episode as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Apollo also explains that he needs Mando's help on a mission. Mando protests, but Apollo points out that he clearly has time um, as his ship needs repairing. They walk into a building... I believe the same pub where they met the client and got into that firefight with Moff Gideon's troops. Did you get the sense that it was the same building? I think it very much is, yes. And surprise, it's been turned into a school. How about that? Didn't see that one coming. They're laying down roots. They're cleaning up the community. They're making this a safe place for, you know, suburban families and their children. The property values are going up. It's amazing what they've accomplished. Navarro has gone legit, ladies and gentlemen. And a 3PO droid is teaching the class potential nostalgic moment of the episode mm-hmm. and it has a surprisingly british sounding accent which i thought was cool a little tie back to c3po mando is reluctant to leave baby yoda at the school wherever i go he goes we got that that mantra yet being repeated here in this episode but apollo and Kara convince him that where they are going baby yoda should not follow and Kara does say he'll be safe here you know i guarantee it or you have my word or something along those lines um, in this school, here's a, here's a very small point. I don't know if you point you, you noticed, but I want to start doing a little bit of the segment I talked about before, which is holy shit, um, what just happened? Let's create a theory. 
um, in the school, a girl with hair buns that are very familiar looking mm-hmm. looks on at Baby Yoda and giggles. Could it be? Could what do it you be? think, sir? Put could, words could it, to it. Could, could it be Ray? Could it? Could it be? I don't yeah, she's know. She's got the got the Ray hairstyle. It, it's and a very Ray tan suit, tan desert suit that Ray has. Um, I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna pitch it to you. Could this be Ray? And if it could, give it a percentage. I think it's a very intentional move on Favreau's part to leave the option open. That's what I think. I don't think it is Ray right now. I think it is a could be Ray. If that is a, if that is a route that he can comfortably work in and that Disney would be comfortable with, because the timeline could roughly work. We don't know enough about it's how close, she. Right. It's, it's close. close. We don't know enough about how she eventually ended up on Jakku. The movies kind of flirted like they were going to explain that, and it ultimately never really clearly did. So, timeline could potentially work. It's just one of the things where they're going to have to consciously weld it to make it happen. So I, that's my ultimate opinion. I know it's kind of dodging the question, but I think it is meant to be a potential placeholder. So one of the things that um, I don't think, I, I think that you're just sort of morally against, but I do follow is the accompanying books to the movies. So what they do in essence is they have a movie and then they have a book to kind of clean it up afterwards. <laughs> and, which, is, which is an old Star Wars tradition. It's an old Star Wars tradition. Yeah. And the books indicate that Ray doesn't have a lot of memories about how she grew up or where she was. So yeah. I think it's in it's in play. If you put a gun to my blaster to my head, I'm going to tell you no. But uh, I think it's in play. Um, I, go ahead. I do th- at, the, at a minimum, it is an intentional reference to get people talking. This is the kind of theorizing <laughs> that Favreau seems comfortable with fans doing. Yep. Baby Yoda settles into his chair. I love this scene, by the way. Love uh, it. With the, a with the macaroons. Scene. Baby Yoda settles into his chair and looks over at a tasty-looking sleeve of cookies. At first, I thought they could be some like uh, blue Thin Mints, maybe. Um, but they macaroons. turn macaroons. out to be macaroons. And he gives a wanting look to one of the kids who ignores him, tries to ignore him. Baby Yoda then sticks out his hand. You have been warned. He has asked nicely, sir. He's asked nicely. As the kid takes a bite, we get some Stranger Things music and Baby Yoda sticks his hand out, uses the force, and yanks the sleeve of cookies away. The kid looks over, sees Baby Yoda, now has the cookies, and is chomping on a blue macaroon. I repeat, Spencer, he asked nicely. I don't want to he hear did. anybody on the internet say Baby Yoda's a bully here. He asked. The kid said no. The kid didn't have any manners, and Baby Yoda taught him a lesson. So here's a question. Practically, if the kid had been politer in saying no... Would Baby Yoda have still would have accept, would Baby Yoda have accepted that? No, no. You have well, to. There you are. Then he, he's got to give him a cookie. Baby, I don't think Baby Yoda would have taken the whole sleeve <laughs> if the kid would have given him one cookie. But he asked nicely. The kid said no. He's not willing to share. You, you, we all know you have to learn to share as a kid, right? I mean, that's like that's step number one. So I, again, I'm completely on Baby Yoda's side here. He just taught the kid a lesson. He's just doing him a favor. Uh, also, do you ever do you watch the uh, YouTube channel Binging with Babish? Yeah. Cook, cooking show. Did you see Favreau star in one of the recent episodes where where they were making macaroons? No, I didn't. That's pretty cool. It's like from like a couple days ago. Watch it. It's fun. But they're making the same blue macaroons. The blue in macaroons. The uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they come up later. Baby Yoda clearly likes the blue macaroons. We cut to oh, Apollo yeah. Creed chatting with Mando, and he reintroduces Mando to them. Uh, Mitral. Um, am I pronouncing? Do you think I'm pronouncing that? My Mitral. 
I wasn't sure. I mean, it's it's spelled M Y T H R O L, so it could be Mithrol or Myth, Mithrol. Mithrol, Mithrol. All right, I'm going to say let, let's settle on Mithrol. Mithrol. Uh, he is here again, and in a weird state of kind of like indentured prisoner servitude. Yeah, it was pretty weird. Um, but that that Mithrol who had to evacuate his thorax in episode one of the first season apparently is now working off his debt. Which is in the hundreds of years, by the way, to Apollo Creed. We know Apollo Creed is human, so he's not going to see that dead out. But I guess Apollo's kids or whatever, uh, or, or inheritors of his state, get the uh, get the contract with the Mithral. Um, the actor who plays the Mithral, by the way, Spencer, did have you looked it up? I have. Don't do it real quick. Is, just just tell me if tell, you've looked it up. Tell me who it is. Tell me who it is. I do not know who this is. This is Horatio Sands, who is a comedian and actor who was on Saturday Night Live from 1998 to 2006. Pretty well known in the comedy community as a, um, I think he was, um, he did um, Second Sons. I believe so he did Second Sons. He did one of those um, improv troops and he landed on SNL and now he stars in movies. So um, yeah. Good for him. Yeah, so Mithral Sands, as I'm going to call him from now on, because they never gave him a name. <laughs> Sold. Never gave him a name. Mithral Sands explains he has no interest in being in Carbonite again. Um, and this is after uh, Mando kind of, in a really bullying way, I thought it wasn't really necessary. He said, well, if you ever have trouble with him again, let me know. Like, okay, like, we get it, Mando. Um, he's a and, prisoner. He's paying off his debt. Be nice. Yeah, geez, they, they are really mean to him. I'm going to talk about that through the episode. They're mean yeah. to this guy. Um and he says apparently he still can't see out of his left eye after being in Carbonite, which actually tracks because for a long time, man, um, you know, Han, Han Solo, after he got out of Carbonite, um, had a, had some physical, uh, you know, lingering effects. And we've okay. in the in the Star Wars lore and the accompanying books and things, we learn that, you know, being in Carbonite is not really like going to sleep and waking up. It, it has a has some physical physiological effects on you that are that are negative. And so. This guy wants no parts of being a carbonite again. I think they refer to it in uh, Return of the Jedi as hibernation sickness that can come from being carbon froze like that. And so it's clear that he's having some lasting effects, which is all the more reason of just how unfairly they treat him over the course of this episode. Yeah, there's shit to him. It's not. It's really not cool. Apollo and Kara explain the mission to Mando. Apparently there is still an Imperial base, base on Navarro, which I, I, don't under, uh, <laughs> I don't understand why there's still an Imperial base on Navarro. We can talk about that later. And they want to take it out to ensure Navarro is completely safe from empirical rule, which was um, which will help the safety net of the, the help to help the safety of the citizens, but will also improve the economy as trade would then open up on the planet without any threat of the empire, remnants of the empire um, either stopping it, collecting tariffs, that sort of thing. Yep. Cut to Mithral Sands driving Apollo, Kara, and Mando in a speeder vehicle. Apollo explains that they need to be dropped off in front of this. Uh, imperial base which Mithral Sands is unhappy about but Apollo explains he has little choice he they, being Mithral it's, it's two noble things here one they're making Mithral probably bring his own speeder which just appears to be extra I'm in control of you and your life kind of shit yep uh, and point number two this must be the most poorly defended Imperial base ever because they just cruise up to the front door well you know I get the impression here that you know, the Imperial, this is the, still the Outer Rim. And yes, the, the Imperial forces are vastly reduced, um, you know, after the events of Return of the Jedi and the uh, resulting rule of the New Republic, which presumably the New Republic is still chasing down the Empire and, and trying to, to rid the, 
the galaxy of its remnants, which mm-hmm. I, I'm not quite sure why they haven't, why the New Republic isn't doing this mission. I don't know why it falls upon Apollo Creed and Mando to do this shit. It should be the New Republic that's doing it. But anyway, um, you're right. I mean, they don't they don't have a lot of security, and I just take that to mean they just have their forces are are, are stretched thin. I also think we get some evidence in this episode that this is a base that may itself already be on the way out. And we get, we get, we get some signs of that as we, as we go through. Yep. They arrive at the base and Mando tries to get into the front door. Mithral tries to leave. Um, Apollo shouts at him, you parked those gills right there. They're just mean to this guy. And like, he seems completely reasonable to me, Spencer. I don't know if you have yeah, a different thought. He never, there's so many opportunities where he could just leave their asses. So many times that he could have just left them high and dry and acted the morally bankrupt convict that they clearly think that he is. This man voluntarily goes into fire with them throughout the course of this episode. And they still treat him like a dick. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah they're, they're, you know, these are our, quote, heroes, but they're not perfect. They're, they're kind of shit to this guy. In my opinion, doesn't really deserve it. But um, Apollo asks him to bring a tool over to break into the front door. And Mando then uses his jetpack to fly up to a landing area above the base and throws a stormtrooper down, which is pretty funny. Yeah, pretty funny. funny moment. As Apollo and Kara enter the front door, the Mithral tries to uh, stay behind, and Kara mentions that he'll get run over by lava if he does. So apparently, this plan is to release a dam of lava um, through the area to destroy the empirical base. Is that your read on it? It's something like that. It seems that this base is powered by some kind of geothermal or you know, lava-focused generator, and that they're mm-hmm. going to in some way set that off so that the base is eventually overwhelmed and blows up. Exactly. Apollo Kara and Mithril Sands get to the top of the base, and Mando has killed a bunch of stormtroopers, commenting, the, commenting that the base clearly isn't empty. Uh, Mithril Sands points out a transport vehicle that doesn't look like it's being used that's apparently worth a lot of money. More on that later, and the crew start to look around. Chekhov's transport. Yeah, we see an Imperial Imperial security guard noticing a camera went down just as Kara defends her light heavyweight champion of the world belt by choking the guy out. Mm-hmm. Mando leads them through the base and we get Mando's music played on a single flute, which I thought was pretty cool, man. Um, the music in this episode is really strong. And, I, you know, you commented before that Carl Weathers directed this episode. This is his directorial debut, by the way. He's never directed anything um, that's actually gone uh, and been released before. Um, I don't know if he had any... Pl- and he's um, saying the music, but I, I know, I know, I noticed the music probably maybe a little bit more than you do. I mentioned it more on the recap, but um, the single flute playing the playing the um, theme of the show, I don't think has ever been done before, and it was a neat effect. I mean, him being the director, I'm assuming that he's got a bit of a touch involved with respect to everything because he's the one that ultimately puts it all together. So I'm perfectly willing to accept that he they probably played a role in, if not necessarily the music choice itself, but certainly its timing. Sure. Mando commands Mithril Sands to splice the door. Um, the crew moves in and they come to a ledge where they can see the lava below. Now, um, it's w- well tracked on this episode, a now defunct podcast we used to do called Whiskey on the Weekends. And pretty much every podcast I've ever been involved in that I am terrified of heights. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you this right now, as in, as imposing as Kara, Apollo Creed, and Mando are, I would have got the hell out. They'd have to kill me because I'm not going out on this ledge like Mithril Sands is. Yeah, out on this ledge above a lake of lava. Just that put can conceptualize what it would take to convince oh. you to do this. How many years do they have to take off your you know in, indentured servitude before you would even consider doing that? They'd have to kill me. I wouldn't do it. I, they'd yeah. have to, they'd have there to you go. Me. I must say that during this, um, Apollo continues to browbeat 
Mithral sands an awful lot. I'm starting to think that there might be a little racism here. I mean, you know, I'm, because that's well documented in the Star Wars, um, you know, lore and, and Star Wars canon of some people, some humans um, have basically overt racism to other um, other species. Yeah, it was one of the main driving forces for the Empire. You may remember, you know, from what we saw of the Empire, particularly in the original movies, it was mono-human. And that was part of a general racist, anti-alien motivation that was part of their, you know, groundswell of support that got to put them into power. So it's definitely involved in the human community. I also would note that Carl, that uh, Apollo Creed does have a personal degree of vendetta against this guy. It's what, what, was the, what was the last name we're giving him? Mithril what? Mithril Sands. Mithril Sands. And that it was Mithril Sands that stole from him. It was him that def- it was Mithril Sands that personally defrauded him, which may factor into part of the personal grudge that he seems to be inflicting on this guy. It's just going way too far. Yeah, and I, th- I, I I'm going to bet that it's like 15% racism, um, sure. if not even maybe a little bit higher than that. Yeah. Mithril Sands succeeds, and the crew starts to run through the base, trying to get out. They come to a corner and see some stormtroopers. Turn the other way, which is an interesting idea. It's an interesting move here, Spencer, because killing a handful of stormtroopers has never really been a problem for this crew. Yeah, but at the same time, they're worried about alarms. They got a deadline to get out of this base. They're rushing. You can understand it. That's a good point. I missed that. Thank, thank you, Spencer. Another point for you. Um, they they did it. You know, Apollo Creed does establish that they have ten minutes to get out of this base. So they're on, they're on a they're on a clock here. And you know, it's a, it's a typical like action movie we have to escape the burning building sequence it's very classic trope yes and it leads here pretty soon to a very interesting moment of when they confront those imperial scientists yes they come to a hallway with more imperial workers that they kill and they see some partially formed bodies suspended in liquid whoop pump the brakes this spencer is a time for a new segment in the mango talks tv review of Mandalorian, and this is holy shit, what did I just see? Let's create a theory. Okay, I'm going to kick it off. So, get, get going. We have these bodies formed in liquid, suspended in liquid. Um, what do we think they're making here? It really depends how ambitious Favreau is. And how much this show is in many ways trying to justify things that we see in the most recent movies or connect things back to things that we saw occur in the Legends lore. In my mind, they're cloning because the Empire loves cloning and that's a big part of the Legends lore and engaging, engaging in cloning projects. And from what we've heard, they're trying to use samples taken from the child Wait a second, we're not quite there yet, but yeah. Uh, My house theory, they're trying to clone the Emperor, and this is going to connect back to how the Emperor appears in the third movie. Okay, all right. And I am going to... Not really fair to you. I'm going to let the recap continue just a little bit longer and then give my theory. I like like what you said there, though, and I would say that that... um, it's probably the prevalent theory online. I, I, it, I when people it, when people first saw it, and it, and I think they paused it and took a close look at it too, and it looks like the skin's kind of like wrinkled a little bit. But I don't buy I don't buy that much as a basis personally because they're freaking rotting clones in a jar. It's okay. They're gonna look that way anyway. Okay. What, but yeah. Fair. But my, 
the two main theories I have is that, and it's helped by something we get here in a second that you're going to reference, but either A, they're trying to clone the Emperor, or B, somewhat similar to something else that we will see at the end of this episode that we know that Gideon, Moth Gideon is doing, it's trying to make a Force-sensitive crop of soldiers or army, which the Empire has also done previously before. We've seen it in particularly some of the video games before, with very mixed results. That's also, I think, a possibility. I'm not sure which one of those I favor more. I think Favreau is ambitious enough, and it's something that the Disney lore needs to be understood and more fully completed, that I kind of lean in favor of the first theory. But, go on. The crew immediately realizes this isn't a forward operating base. Kara mentions this is actually a lab. Mando plainly states, I don't like this, speaking for all of us in the Star Wars community. Mithral Sands goes to the control panel and a Zoom message pops up of Dr. Pershing, who we saw in the first season. He is the doctor who was working with Baby Yoda. He's got the, he had the Camino um, uh, um, uniform on. We saw uh-huh. the, the Camino um, uh, sig- sigil or sigil um, on the, the arm of him. So we know that he is involved in, you know, the, the operations at Camino, which were, well, which were, which were cloning, but were a lot of other things as well. So, um, yeah, he, he works, uh, he's a Camino doctor and he's conveying that the bodies, um, initially he's saying this and we're just kind of getting a fragment of this message. We don't have a lot of context for it, but he's saying the bodies initially saw some progress, but eventually rejected blood and that without more blood from the donor, I'm paraphrasing here, they would have to suspend their trials. He indicates that they don't have blood with a high M count. The high M count, M count, the high M count, Spencer, M count, M count, M count that they got from the donor, um, which they, uh, Mando and Apollo immediately understand is Baby Yoda. They share a knowing look and Mando says he's got to get back to Baby Yoda and the crew takes off. Okay. You, you warned me. You fucking warned me that Favreau was the only Star Wars fan alive that liked midichlorians. I saw an interview with him where he talked about how much he loved the idea of midichlorians. I told you he did. And it's come to bear. Um, M count, for those who don't know, is likely a reference. I'm 90, we're 99% sure is a reference to midichlorians. This came up. Uh, this was not, midichlorians did not exist in episode four, five, and six in the Legends lore. It was created in episode one, which George Lucas wrote, directed, produced. George, it came from the mind of George Lucas. It's canon. But it is a, a measurement of force sensitivity that you can get out of someone's blood. And apparently they tested the midichlorian count or M count, as they're going to call it now, because apparently you can't call it midichlorians anymore because of the backlash that happened to episode one, which I'm explaining right now. They took the M count, midichlorian count, from Anakin Skywalker, and apparently it was off the charts. They said even higher than Yoda. I still don't buy that. Still don't fucking buy that. But... They talk about midichlorians as a way to sort of test and figure out someone's force sensitivity in episode one. Now, there's a huge backlash in the Star Wars community to this because folks thought that force sensitivity shouldn't be something you can measure through someone's blood in a lab trial. It should be something that people develop, um, you know, and work on. And that's kind of the idea. This is I'm speaking for the fans here. It's kind of the idea behind the force is that everybody has a connection to the force. You know, your sensitivity to it is just how hard you've worked to develop that. Spencer, you groaned, you groaned. I know your backstory. I know your preferences. I'm going to give you the floor here to completely bash midichlorians. Go. Midichlorians is always a really fucking dumb idea. It seems that, <laughs> Luke, Luke, that 
Lucasfilm and LucasArts very quickly recognized. It was something that they dropped as if suddenly the Force is tiny little organisms that live in your body that only people that have certain amounts and, you know, can be relatively measured by scientific means to know the exact level of their Force sensitivity and Force powers, was only in that film and never referenced again. It was dropped like a hot potato once the fandom just went up in arms that you keep your fucking science out of my Force. You've talked about me before being kind of like a Star Wars, a Star Trek fan and Star Wars drag, which is generally fair. I like to have a certain degree of explanation. But at the same time, I'm actually the kind of guy that loves the appearance of magic in an otherwise science fiction setting. I love the appearance of magic in a world that is otherwise reasoned and controlled and the effects that it has upon it in a way that can't be fully conceptualized or can't be fully tested or mathematically understood. It can only be understood by being experienced, by being connected to. And the thing I always liked about the Force is, like you said, it was a cross-cutting energy field that connected everybody. It wasn't something that lived in our fucking blood. It was something that was endemic to the galaxy that people could tap into through understanding, through time, through effort. Some people would be naturally more sensitive to it than others, but it was something that was uniting all organisms in the galaxy in a way that Star Wars has at times struggled with. It's, I, I don't want to blame Lucas too much for that one dumb move, because we also got the Yuzong Vong before, which was the dumbest thing that ever appeared in Star Wars, it being the anti-force, which was dumb. But I have always despised midichlorians for that exact reason of where I can appreciate an element of mystery. I can appreciate something that can't be fully understood. It can only be... It, it's not just something you can just wave a, you know, a tricorder at and have a full compression of. It's something that more has to be experienced and lived to get a full understanding of. And that's something I liked about the Force and something I thought that midichlorians always interfered with. So I was kind of happy that they've been kind of banished to the Star Wars wastebasket. But apparently Favreau and his influence is going to start bringing it fucking back. Well, he's calling it an M-count now. He's not calling it midichlorian. So you got that going for you. I will say that I always thought that the Force was kind of like God. Mm. Like in the sense that it's like the thing that creates everything and keeps us all together and keeps us like it's the thing that, you know, makes you love each other or feel connected to each other. And it's just something that you can you, you can develop um, to create powers around it in this magical universe. So, I, you know, of course, the idea that you could just measure it, you know, in somebody's blood is kind of anathema to my initial understanding of the force. I will say, though, that I took more issue with the fact that they they were saying Anakin's M count was higher than Yoda's than the fact that M count existed to begin with. <laughs> I know. My, my, I was so mad at the idea that they thought that, that Anakin and subsequently Darth Vader were stronger in the force than Yoda of all fucking. Yeah. No. No, no, he's not. Uh-uh. Not, not buying that. So, yeah, that was my beef with it. But I will say that while they did not continue talking about M-counts in the movies, I do think that the, this concept that, you you know, it's basically something that's kind of inherited and that you kind of have or you don't have did continue to exist in the movies because, you know, like they had to make Rey, um, Darth Vader, or uh, Dar um, the Emperor's granddaughter in order to explain her force sensitivity. It is something where there's always been a bit of an inherited edge to it, but it's not always been consistent. Again, it's not been something that was just so easily one-to-one. -one. But like you, one thing I always kind of struggled with in the prequels and I thought was a bit of a dumb design choice on their part was making Anakin, you know, this kind of prophecy or prod or just like uber prodigy, this kind of... What was the word they did uh, that would refer to him? It was... um. 
I can't remember the exact phrase they used to refer to Anakin. He's like a, a one a one off unique thing in the Force. Uh, come to me in a minute. Okay. I, I never really appreciated that. I always thought Anakin, particularly in the lore, was more important for the actions than he did than purely his birth and making it all about his birth and that he was a prophecy. Once, in a, once in a lifetime kind of prophecy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It never it never fit as well for what I thought was more interesting about his character. And as as you said, making him more powerful than Yoda, not only is just dumb from a lore standpoint, it's just dumb for what you show standpoint. They never showed him as being that particularly powerful in the Force. No, they never they never showed anybody mean, being more powerful than Yoda in the Force except for the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's consistent all the way through the books, the movies, the everything that includes those two characters. So I just completely dismissed the concept that uh, Anakin would be stronger uh, in the Force than than Yoda. I don't but, believe that's true. But, 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 but I want you to hear your theory, sir. I am going to these? give you my theory. I have a theory. Um, so this is the pump the brakes. Holy shit, what did I just see? Let's create a theory segment of the episode. And it is, for me, that the suspended bodies that we see there were attempts to create Snoke. Um, that, I, is, that is another interesting one. We don't know. We have no, I have no evidence for this, right? All we know from the, so all we know from the books is that what we saw in the rise of Skywalker, when the emperor returned and he was connected to all of those weird things and he looked like the emperor, but I mean, he was really kind of fucked up and like his flesh was rotting and stuff. That was a clone and the clone body could not, um, could not inhabit the, the emperor's um, power and, and his, his spirit and, and all of the force powers that he has it without it breaking down. Mm-hmm. And so there was an in, in indication in the books that potentially, you know, this might not be the first clone that he has been in since, you know, uh, Darth Vader threw him down the shaft in the second death star in the battle of Endor that he might have, you know, used had to had to replicate that because the bodies keep breaking down. I don't think that his spirit sat out there for five years, you know, before inhabiting a clone. I think that's too long a time. That doesn't make sense to me. So I think what we're seeing right now, this is just my guess, is that Moff Gideon is working for the Emperor. That the Emperor is in a clone body. You know, maybe out in the Sith planet that he's he's in when we see him, the Rise of Skywalker. Do you remember the name of that Sith planet? I do not know. I, I don't either. Could you look it up while I'm talking? Yeah, well. Thank you. Um, so I don't. I think he's there, and I think that Moff Gideon is doing his bidding, and part of his bidding is to create Snoke, because we know in the Rise of Skywalker um, that the Emperor does explain that he created Snoke, and we even see in his little laboratory there, you know, old, you know, partially formed Snoke bodies. So that's my guess: is that Moff Gideon is doing the bidding of Clone Emperor, the Emperor's spirit that's inhabiting the clone. And he's creating Snoke in this laboratory using the blood of baby Yoda. Because, uh, go ahead. Uh, Exegol. Exegol. There you go. Thank you. Much appreciated. I think the Emperor's at Exegol. He's commanding. uh, He's creating his forces that we see in the Rise of Skywalker. He's commanding Moff Gideon to create Snoke using baby Yoda's blood. And we know that Snoke, while being just basically like a, you know, like a program, like a computer program, is really strong in the Force. So and, that's my theory. And, and the idea of there being Emperor clones out there is well in keeping with the Legends lore. That was, it was something the New Republic had to, had to fiddle and deal with in the years after the, uh, the death of the Emperor in the Battle of Endor was that the man had fallback plans in place. He yep. knew that his 
the malevolence and the power of his spirit would not just simply fade upon death and kept on finding new ways to inhabit clone bodies to keep his reign going. Yep. Yeah. So, well, I, I think, I do think we'll get an answer eventually. This, this seems important enough as far when I say this, I mean, what, what is going on in that laboratory is important enough to this story. Um, that I think Favreau has to explain it. So I think we're going to get an explanation. But anyway, that's my theory. We can continue with the recap. Mm-hmm. Mando comes to a ledge overlooking the lava and takes off. Jody, going back to um, the little uh, village there in Navarro and trying to get Baby Yoda. Uh, After- two, two, actually, two last points that just occurred to me with respect to that scene with the scientists. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, point number one. When they showed up, the scientists were trying to purge the records. It's an, I think it's an yes, that's true. Note. Yeah, that's true. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't clear whether they were essentially already doing that before the attack on the base. I thought it was kind of implied that they were already trying to clear shop before it happened, and we're now just trying to do it more quickly. Um, Maybe. Point number two: This is the first moment where they realize that Moth Gideon is still alive. Is that Doctor Pershing is yep. sending the message to Moth Gideon? I think it's just an important thing to note. Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah, we, yeah, and it's an important thing to note for the. Characters. I think it's something. Yeah, for the character. I think it's easy to sort of do exactly what I did and bypass it only because we knew Moff Gideon was alive because we saw him cut out of the TIE fighter wreckage with Darksaber. But this is when Mando realizes that Moff Gideon is still alive. Yes. Uh, Mando takes off, um, firing his jetpack, leaving the base, cuts to Mithril Sands, Apollo Creed, and Kara Dune attempting to escape. They eventually get pinned down by Stormtrooper fire. Kara, I don't know how she does this. Apparently she's repellent to blaster fire, but she just runs right out in the middle of the middle of the, like they're, it's so incongruent. Like they're being pinned down. They can't even so much as stick their head up above this thing they're hiding under and Kara can just take off for 40 feet to get into this transport that Mithral Sands pointed out earlier in the episode. Well, you have to understand when a character in star Wars yells out, cover me, they immediately then get an incredible, incredible immunity. armor shield around them. <laughs> yeah. You complete immunity to blaster fire, which she has. she, hops into this transport and um, she drives up to Apollo and Mithral. And I'm going to address the elephant in the room right now. Whoever is writing Kara's lines really needs some work because she pulls up and says, what are you guys doing? Waiting for an, an invitation? Let's move. It's her, right? I like the character. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that she's like from Alderaan. She's a former rebel soldier. All that. It's great. God, she's corny. Incredibly corny. It's like one of the six of where the moment she got a Marshall badge, the corniness just went up about 45%. It, 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 I, I, I don't know if she's just purposely stunting when it comes to these lines, but I agree that it's stilted. It's terrible. Kara drives the vehicle towards some stormtroopers and ultimately off the side of the base, and which is off a cliff, which it's is a wild shot. scene. It was wild scene. Um, they land without too much damage and take off and stormtroopers follow on speeder bikes, potential nostalgic moment of the episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so fucking cool. They looked exactly like the model of speeder bikes that were used on indoor and were in so, oh, so many video games. And, you know, I was almost hopeful at first that all of them would make it to the bottom because at first they looked so goddamn cool. But continuing a trend of both the show and modern Star Wars lore, at least two or three of them wreck before they even make it to the ground. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like they train stormtroopers and like, you know, like the sort of like, okay, well, here's your module, training module on speeder bikes. Um, It's 45 minutes. They forget it. And then they find themselves having to be on speeder bikes at some point in the years past. I just want to sit modern Star Wars writers and directors down like, okay, let's watch the three original movies together with me. They're not that bad. This has become a meme. It's not, it's not, you're, you're really exaggerating this way too far. 
And now we have ourselves a good old-fashioned chase scene. Great music playing, by the way, during the chase scene. I don't know if you caught it. It's orchestral music. It is good, um, yeah. It's not like you know keyboard or, or modern like um, electronic music. It's it's orchestral music, but it's ominous and driving. So it's a it really builds and adds to the scene. During the chase, Kara is driving and Apollo is manning the gun, and he's got a scope on that gun that looks a lot like a New Hope technology, doesn't it? It looks exactly like the same scope from the uh, Millennium Falcon of when it was like Luke, yeah. Luke uh, operating that uh, laser battery underneath the Millennium, Millennium Falcon. Really cool. A stormtrooper gets on the side of the vehicle, but Kara knocks him into the side of the cliff. Another gets on top of the vehicle and is about to drop a grenade on it before, uh-oh, Apollo Creed sees him, shoots him, and we see a stormtrooper's head roll onto the ground. Woo! A little bit darker than the original movies, don't you think? It was pretty damn dark. I'm willing to bet that they were trying to make, make it to be a helmet, but no, come on. The guy's head isn't that thing. That's wild, man. Next they see the base exploding. They think they have victory. So to your point, that that's exactly what happened. They, they, they triggered something for lava to come in. It exploded the base. Um, so whatever we saw in those containers apparently failed because that's all blown up now. It's one thing this episode made very clear, and I think it's both a decision probably by Carl Weathers and by Favreau, about stormtroopers die like stormtroopers, but they still die like people. They still scream. They still yeah. cry out. They still beg. And it's an interesting decision from what is often the much more pristine kind of morality and death that were associated with Star Wars. These guys make it hurt a little bit. These guys make it rough and gnarly. When they squish that one stormtrooper against a wall and he screamed and then his head spins mm-hmm. off. This is some dark shit we get to see in Mandalorian of where pe- even people that are dying like stormtroopers are still in pain and suffering. Well, that's something I think that like the showrunners that have grabbed the, the, the franchise since George Lucas, both JJ Abrams and now John Favreau, both have decided they want to try to humanize stormtroopers more. And I, you, you can quibble about if that's a good idea, but they clearly have that, have that goal and they're doing it. I, I I wish they, I wish in their minds, humanity wasn't a trade for professionalism is that I think they've gone it too far to make stormtroopers all at a certain point, comic buffoons in a way that like I've talked about in the last episode, you need to make your bad guys a, a credible threat. You need to make yeah. them intimidating and capable. And if you go too far in the other direction, you start going first order and that's a dangerous road to go down. Well, you know, we're, the, the show works on that a little bit here in uh, in later episodes. But um, I just want to point out, uh, when they see the base exploding, they think they have victory. But if you TIE fighters are dispatched to attack them, I just want to point out the TIE fighter pilots are about as good a shot as stormtroopers. Pretty terrible shots. Um, Kara juices the vehicle, making it go just about as fast as it can. And Apollo shoots down a TIE fighter, but the wreckage takes out the gun on the vehicle. Uh, yeah, you want to jump in? Just utterly beautiful cinematography and shots in these scenes. If they're them racing down this canyon, I love the shot of when they get out of the canyon and then they're just racing across the open landscape with yeah. the TIE fighters in pursuit. This is zigzagging. beautiful filmmaking here. Yeah. They are zigzagging. I like that. Come on, Rickon. Zigzag. Do it like this, guys. <laughs> a little, 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 um, little, little something that Rickon wasn't doing there, but it was zigzagging. Um, it looks like the remaining TIE fighters are going to take down the vehicle when they're out in this open plane. It doesn't look good at all. And Bando sweeps in with the razor's crest and takes them out. Yep, with his theme. A few try to get away, but Mando tracks them down. Mando cold-blooded as Baby Yoda chomps on some macaroons and enjoys the show. As the last TIE fighter is killed, we get the show's theme. Triumphant theme. A lot of trumpets here. And Mando turns to Baby Yoda to see if he enjoyed it. Baby Yoda spits up on himself. 
it was a very bouncy ride. The guy gets motion sick. You understand. I really enjoyed that scene though because it was beautifully shot because they were showing um, the Razor's Crest really um, tracking down these TIE fighters like through clouds, mm-hmm. which I thought was a cool effect. But then inside the, you also got the fun effect of, or the fun scene of like inside the cockpit, Baby Yoda like cheering as they kill the TIE fighter. Like Baby Yoda's just having himself a grand old time. Um, He's not getting, not getting anywhere near off wind in his ears though. You know, you just need to set up like a fan in front of him so he can really just appreciate them moving through the air. But you know, again, he's learning how to be a dad. Loves the wind in his ears. Um, Apollo then bid goodbye to Mando as Mando explains he's got somewhere to go. Thanks for the repairs. Got to get out of here. There's clearly a lot of warmth in the relationship between these three characters being Apollo Creed, Cara Dune, and, and Mando now. Don't you think? There is quite a bit of warmth. And it's interesting to see. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of shipping? Uh, no. Shipping is the idea of, of, it's essentially a short for relationshipping, of where it's the fandom starts to pair characters together they would prefer as their, you know, preferred romantic couples. Uh, the amount of shipping that goes on between Mara, um, between Mando and Cara Dune and the fandom is impressive. Apparently there's a large portion of the fandom that wants the two of them to end up together. Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there. I think they're just friends. I think they're perfectly just friends, and honestly, I would prefer if they remain such. Shipping goes way... The focus of shows of making every relationship ultimately romantic, I think, is bowing to the shipping motivations of the fans more than it should. Friendships can often be a lot more powerful and interesting relationships to explore. Yep, we cut back to Navarro, and Mr. Kim, okay, I see you, is getting to debrief on what happened. That's our main guy. Appa, he's returned. Appa, our favorite favorite convenience store owner from canada is getting a debrief on what happened apollo creed completely blows him off so this goes back to your theory from earlier in the episode i want to draw back to where you say that yeah apollo's old enough that maybe he was a magistrate of an old republic stronghold and maybe he got kicked out maybe something happened and he ended up with the bounty hunter guild because um he is not cooperating at all with Mr. Kim and I find Mr. Kim to be completely reasonable in all of these scenes. And I probably would have, um, probably would have worked with him if I was in, in, in either one of their positions. No, he's not even, he's not even acting with like an official authority. He's kind of acting like it's just an emissary. Just he's, a just guy, here, yeah. mm-hmm. he's respecting this guy's role as the magistrate of this planet and just greeting him on those terms and with full respect. He knows the guy is obviously lying to him and withholding information, but he doesn't try to, you know, wield his for wield his a uh, you know power and authority around he just greets him on those terms spencer how much and you're a cheap man cheap man but how much money would you have paid for when apollo creed blew off mr kim mr kim turned around and said okay see ya and just walked out <laughs> i want to see the outtakes of the season because i totally believe he did that oh my god it, w- <laughs> it would be in the hundreds of dollars i would have wanted to see that um, Mr. Kim then goes to Kara. Kara is a little bit more warm with him, but not uh, no, but not nowhere near warm, but just a little bit more. Um, he recognizes that she once served the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, says he knows something. This is Mr. Kim now talking. He says, "Look, I know something's going on out here. They don't know it, but I know it, and we can't get our arms around it without local support. You need to help us." And Kara kind of mm, give hymns and haws a little bit. Mr. Kim mentions that Kara was from Alderaan. Um, this, any reference of Alderaan to Carr really puts ice in her veins. You can tell, um, really touching moment here. He asked if she lost anyone and she said, I lost everyone. And Mr. Kim gives her a knowing, a knowing nod, um, in that same warmth that he shows his two children, 
um, in the convenience store that they run in Canada. I thought it was a uh, very good. <laughs> He's really bringing that to the fore, even operating very in a warm. totally different setting in galaxy. It's but that, you know, that's potential line of the episode. Did you lose anyone? I lost everyone. That's a good point. That's a good one. Because it, you know, it, it, it not that impactful for this episode, but it does, you know, draw in the fact that like, that was a wildly traumatic moment in, in the galaxy when, mm-hmm. Darth Vader and the Emperor destroyed the entire planet of Alderaan. I mean, Alderaan was a huge player in the Old Republic. A lot of people there. Um, very well-respected planet. And they just blew it the fuck up. So, like, yeah. It, referencing that. Her saying she lost everybody. It's important for the lore. Probably really important for character building for her. It shows why she's so despondent all the time. She's not willing to connect with people. So, yeah. Potential line of the episode there. It'd be like, just like, say, the British Isles. The UK just blew up. What effect would that have on the global landscape if that just suddenly happened? If you know, another nation just obliterated the UK, we'd be talking about it for deal. hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, exactly. With a lot of lot of real, real, real pain from the survivors. It, it's interesting here. We get. I mean, it's fun to go into the backgrounds of these characters where the backgrounds aren't necessarily written, and we can only tease out details of where Appa, Mister Kim, he says that he served on Alderaan. Yep. Which he's an older man in the. Yeah. Uh, it strongly suggests that he's got he, two two middle aged or two college aged children. Yeah, I'm really excited when we get to meet them here on the show. Um, <laughs> it, it's very possible he was probably then serving in the old republic himself before. You know. Oh, I think he certainly was. He probably. I think what they've set him. I, I think it's a really good point, Spencer. I think they've set him up as like he's old. He's an OG. He served the republic. Yes. He served the empire, uh, the rebellion, and now he's serving the new republic. Yeah, I mean if. It, if he was serving the old public and then joined the rebel alliance before the destruction of Alderaan, like you said, he's one of their first adherents. Because I mean, one forgets that you know we talk about um, uh, we talk we talk about the we refer to the the, the, re, the rebellion as the rebel alliance. One forgets that it was the wielding together of different forces. You had Mon Mothma as providing mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, a official representation and some loyalty and support from Chandrilla. You had Garmbel Ibis and his much more militant arm that kind of ultimately broke off from Rebel Alliance. But you also have Bail Organa and Alderaan as being one of the original yeah. focal points of the Rebellion. Mm-hmm. A lot of original Rebel personnel came from Alderaan because they were one of the main original grounds from which this alliance came together. And the reverence for Alderaan is yes. what allowed Leia to continue to be a um, a real figurehead of the Rebellion, drawing enthusiasm and support across the galaxy. Yeah. So if he, I mean, if he was, you know, serving under Bail Organa or was just assi- was one of the old, old Republic soldiers assigned to Alderaan during that period, this man was fighting in battles well before the Battle of Yavin kind of shit. It, it's, it's impressive how long he's been in service. Completely agree. Uh, we'll wrap up the recap here. We should cut to a shot of an Imperial Star Destroyer. Um, and, and Spencer, by the way, when I, I, I make these... And when I say like that's an Imperial Star Destroyer, if I ever get it wrong, cut me off. I, I'm it, pretty sure this is an Imperial Star Destroyer here, though. It, it's hard to say. It doesn't seem to fit the usual classic structural steam of the classic ISD Imperial Star Destroyer, but it's clearly within the same line. Yeah. Um, it, it seems to be it's perhaps more of a custom ship, which would probably make sense from a certain degree, given how the Imperial Remnant is now splintered and is operating on their own in their own separate groups. Well, I think it also would make sense um, in the sense that Moff Gideon is much more um, nimble than yes. than the classic empire, empirical forces. 
And I, I think that's on purpose. So he, he probably is doing a lot of customization of old Empire um, equipment and ships and the like. As we see here in this scene. Yeah, exactly. They're getting, a, you see how I did that? They're cutting a, uh, getting a message from someone about the events on Navarro. An Imperial officer then takes that information and goes to Moff Gideon. Okay, first, I believe this is the first um, uh, showing of Moff Gideon that we have in the season, other than that Zoom message from earlier. Um, or no, that, we don't even have that, right? This is the first time we ever see Moff Gideon in the season. Is that correct? We got to see him briefly by Zoom message with that. Uh, oh, yes, yes, uh, yes. In the last episode, Long Live the Empire. Yes, you're right. Yes. <laughs> Um, he says the tracking beacon, she says the tracking beacon has been installed on the razor's crest quote. Does he still have the asset? Yes. Our source confirmed it and we will be ready. Boom. End of the episode. Well, not quite. Cause we get a zoom out of what the hell Gideon is looking at. Well, what is he looking at? He, I yelled this out when I saw this and we all, you know, you and I are up to date on the episodes. We're still playing catch up with the, with, with the, with these recordings. We get him confirming the name of these later. Moff Gideon has restarted the Dark Trooper project. Well, he ha- well, <laughs> a bit of a spoiler for later episodes. Yes, he has. But I do think that a uh, just a normal fan watching this who hasn't read the books or whatever wouldn't know, wouldn't know and could have potentially thought that some of the lab research we saw on Navarro could be connected to these these troopers because I did see a lot of theory speculation that he was. But maybe Moff Gideon was trying to create Force-sensitive um, stormtroopers. I think that from what information we have, purely focusing on the episode, that was a very legitimate, even probably more likely theory. If you're not recognizing these objects from what previously you've seen in the lore, that's the more likely theory to focus on, I think. But yeah. we do get name-drop confirmation a couple episodes from now. Agreed. Okay, whoop! That's the end of the recap. We are done. Spencer, let's... Give a few wrap-up thoughts for the episode before we jump into our two remaining segments. I will kick it off. I do think this was a bit of a filler episode, but we did get some things that were really important to the through line. We've talked about this show in terms of like a Law and Order or House or episodic show where you get a tight, controlled, okay, character needs to get from point A to point B in this episode. They get there, hoorah, the heroes win. But there is a through line narrative that is cutting across either one season or multiple seasons. And I think that this this episode um, illustrates that pattern really, really well, right? It, it, it's a, conti- a contained episode. They have a they have a goal. Let's go destroy the empir- empir- uh, empirical base on Navarro. Boom, they do it. The heroes win. There's even the, the cheering at the end, right? Where mm-hmm. Apollo, Creed, and Kara are cheering for Mando as he kills these TIE fighters. But... We did get some through line stuff. So I'm not willing to like completely toss it out as a filler episode. I'm going to say it's 85% filler, 15% connecting the episodes with the Moff Gideon storyline and the speculation as to what the hell they could have been researching in that lab on Navarro. Because as we have both talked about in our theory, um, you know, very well could connect to the rise of Skywalker and some of the, 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 the really um, entrenched and difficult questions to answer about the, the last three movies. Yeah, what do you seems, think? I think it seems like either way we're theorizing in, we have different theories, but they're both trying to explain things that weren't fully explained or given much background on in the most recent films. I think both of our primary theories focus on that kind of idea, be it Snoke, yep. be it the emperor, either yep. way would fall in that category. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I very much agree with your percentage assessment of this episode. I don't think it's fair to call it filler. 
because it is moving forward the overarching plot. It is giving us connections that are going forward to that. It's not purely and entirely disseparate from the through line of the entire series. Right. It just a lot is. I think yeah. there were episodes back in the first season, like the, Mag- the Magnificent Seven Protect the Village episode, that were much more filler than this. And honestly, and I, you and I talked about this before, I don't mind filler, so long as it's good filler. I don't mind just, you know, things that broaden our understanding of the universe, even if they don't necessarily move forward the arc plot. I think I'm in a minority there when it comes to fans of the show, because fans of the show get, re- I think it's fair to say, fans of the show get pissed real quick with filler episodes. There's a lot of grumbling online with episodes that start to be filler, mm-hmm. or have greater elements of filler. I don't mm-hmm. mind as much. Like we kind of discussed in this episode, there I had a few issues with the writing in this episode more than I actually did with the direction. I thought the direction and the cinematography and the work of the sound design and music were all very solid. It was just some interesting plot decisions or having characters move from A to B. I found a little bit annoying at times or a little bit lackluster. I think in the end, I'd put this episode probably in the bottom third of the episodes of the series so far. But it's this series. It's still a good episode. It's still very entertaining. And as you said, it raises some really fun, fascinating questions to discuss. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think we're on the same page um, with our assessment of the the episode. Um, again, um, pretty good episode. I'm going to give it a B plus, but yeah, I would have given it a much lower grade at four o'clock in the morning on a Friday morning <laughs> when I woke up early with a big cup of coffee, expecting to see uh, my homegirl Ahsoka Tano. Does not have Ahsoka Tano F minus. Imagine that was your thoughts at the time. <laughs> I was pretty frustrated, to be honest with you. But um, and then you, and you notice, I don't know if you if you noticed, but when this episode debuted, you did not get the early no. morning text from me. Yeah, don't fucking scare me like that, by the way. You have me worried. Every one of these episodes, you've been immediately <laughs> at like 4 a.m. like, oh my God, you've got to watch this yeah. and nothing from you. I was going to send out Mounties. No, you got nothing from me because it was a meh episode, just like how you started this. Although I will point out, we've already, we're, we're, we're recording this after chapter 14 has aired. You did get an early morning text on chapter 14. <laughs> you got an early morning text from me. That's what chapter 14 was like. Uh, okay. All right. Well, that is it. We have wrapped up the episode. We've done our recap. Now on to best line of the episode. I alone remember best line of the episode. However, Spencer will supply we su- supply me with some nominations. Spencer, what are your nominees for best line of the episode? Uh, Dimension 1, you already said. Did you lose anyone? I lost everyone powerful line not Very only not only yeah. for the characters though it's clearly that both the characters have their own issues and their own difficulties with it but it goes beyond that like we talked about the loss of alderaan was devastating to the galaxy Huge. this is one of the most ancient of the core worlds one of the most foundational planets and systems of the entire old republic yep. its people were everywhere its history was you know, dating back to the foundations by which the Old Republic exists. It was the one of the founding worlds of the Rebel Alliance with its leadership key in terms of its initial support. So not only to everyone in the, in, in the now New Republic, but particularly to people who fought in the Rebel Alliance, who've carried on through, the loss of Alderaan is still an open wound and one that can never heal. And so this line representing that was very important and very powerful to me. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to do the entire, I'm not going to go through all of it here, but the entire quote from the protocol droid in the classroom discussing the geography of the galaxy, mm-hmm. I was eating that shit up. I would have so happily been a, a, a member of that class sitting there 
sharing macaroons with baby yoda <laughs> they are macaroons indeed blue macaroons i would have been sharing them with baby yoda without hesitation but i would have been just as happy as a clam uh so i think that it's a great series of lines <laughs> it's wonderful star wars nostalgia it's going to cross over to both categories but i love that extended exchange um Dr. Pershing. I got Pershing. Right. Pershing. Dr. Pershing. Yep, correct. Uh, his entire recording sent to Moff Gideon is important. I'm not going to read it all here. It's long, but it is... Sent- Hit us with a few lines. Just a few highlights. Okay. I mean, it starts with the idea that they were promising effects for the entire fortnight, but then sadly the body rejected the blood. He described it earlier as a catastrophic failure. I highly doubt we'll find a donor with a higher M count, though. Ugh. I recommend that we suspend all <laughs> experimentation... I fear that the volunteer will be the same regrettable fate if we proceed with the transfusion. Then he goes into the child. That we've exhausted the supply of blood. The child is small. I was only able to harvest a small and limited amount without killing him. These experiments are to continue as requested. We would again require access to the donor. I will not disappoint you again, Moff Gideon. It's, inc- it's very powerful because it gives us some enough insight to speculate what the hell they're doing. We never really understood what they were doing with the kid before. You and I were throwing theories back and forth. Now that we know right. that it's in some way connected to cloning and volunteers and injecting and transfusions, we got enough to hang ourselves with when it comes to theories. And that's interesting enough. It's interesting enough for our characters, but the fact that it ends with a reference to Moff Gideon is still alive and it was sent to him only like three days before is old hat to us, but to the characters, it is shocking to the core. So important line, important exchange. Uh, let's see here. Another one I liked, and again, it's... I. <laughs> I love I, I love Mr. Cam Appa on the show. He's a great character. Mr. Cam! But partic- again, I really hope we're going to meet his kids at some point. I'm assuming they're going to be junior officers in the New Republic. That would be great. One a bit estranged, but yes. Uh, one of it, his son apparently got lost and ended up in the Expanse universe. These things happen, but you know, he seems like he was doing well <laughs> in that as well. Um, I think he also is ending up in the Marvel universe. That kid really needs a map to find out where his dad is so we can get back to him. <laughs> But I loved his line about there's something going on out here. This is even speaking with Karatun. They don't believe in the core worlds, but it's true. These aren't isolated instances. They need to be stopped before it's too late, but we can't do it without local support. As an emissary of the New Republic and his values, you could not do better than Mr. Kim. He is just so embodying the positive traits of the New Republic. About It's not just about defeating them. It's not about it's just wielding our influence and exerting control. He legitimately wants to help. He wants to stop these people because they're a threat, not only to the New Republic and its accepted domains, but also to the Outer Rim and its limited New Republic influence. He personally wants to do good, and he wants to work with the local people to make that happen. And that's just such an embodying of the new values and features that we see of the New Republic compared to what came before them in a way that just makes him perfect as kind of an outlying marshal to guard and shepherd these areas. I love what they've done with this character. I love how they're emphasizing that you can be lawful good without being an idiot, and how much he stands for that kind of principle. So I think it's a very important line. One line I want you to do, though, because I think I think I, it's, an, it's an important line I didn't oh write down. Here we go. Ending line of the episode. What, what was the ending line of the episode? I did not write it down. The tracking beacon has been installed on the Razor's Crest. Does he still have the asset? Yes, our source confirmed it. And we will be ready. Tell me of this line, sir. Was it a powerful line? Was it an important line? I'm going to go ahead and award best line of the episode right now for chapter 12. Mandalorian. 
Does he still have the asset? Yes, our source confirmed it, and we will be ready. Spencer teed me up for that one, but yes, that is best line of the episode. I have it as best line of the episode, not because of great writing. I don't think this is a well, particularly well-written episode. This this, this was line a, doesn't blow you away, right? This is kind of a disporting disporting. Um, uh, I forgot my word, but it's a disporting foray for Favreau. I thought it was kind of, it was mm-hmm. a little bit lackluster for him, given the quality of his writing previously. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's because he probably is my guess here. He probably just mentally thought of this episode in the same way that we have initially reviewed it, which is, you know, it's eighty percent filler, eighty five percent filler, and a lot of action. So I don't, I don't think he took a long time writing this episode. I would not think, and I don't think this is a particularly well written line, but I do it's think the line, line has a lot of weight for what we have talked about that that through line of the season and the seasons now of you know basically the the threat to baby yoda and mando's uh, all-out attempts to protect him and this is an indication of well now there's a tracking beacon on the razor's crest what has protected mando and baby yoda thus far this season well it's well documented that it's the fact that the razor's crest is so old that it's pre-empire it it's off the um you know it's off of the grid basically mm-hmm. for um you know off the grid for for the new empire and the or sorry the the new republic and the empire so that's how he's able to get through so the fact that there's a tracking beacon on it now poses a lot of danger to mando and maybe yoda i believe it's foreshadowing events to come therefore it is best line of the episode and I agree. spencer and it, your thoughts i agree and i think it's in keeping with the values you set as emperor at best line of the episode that the key thing here is its importance not necessarily that the best written or the most entertaining a lot of those can be throwaway lines but it's importance for the arc of the show and the themes of the show. And I think that this line is very important in that regard. Like you said, their anonymity is the only thing that's been keeping them alive. If they now can track this ship through the, you know, communications beacons that are built into hyperspace so they're able to know where they are at all fucking times, that's really bad. That, that, that's yeah. the only way that it'll survive so far is to be able to be, be in hiding. If they no longer have that advantage, they're all kinds of screwed. Well, I mean, yeah, and let's remember that, you know, he has one rickety ship. And, you know, Moff Gideon has at least a fleet and a Imperial Star Destroyer. So the fact that he now is being tracked poses an immediate, immediate danger to Mando in a way that we've not seen in previous episodes in previous seasons. Yeah. So, yeah, huge, huge line. Who's he going to turn to right now? I mean, realistically, if he wasn't, you know, essentially a wanted outlaw with his own primarily criminal career and motivations, he could go to the New Republic and ask for support. He could talk to Appa. He could, you know, associate with whatever probably is the command base or ship that he's working with and probably pose more than a credible threat to whatever forces the Imperial Remnant has in this area. New Republic's better equipped and got better resources. They are the Empire now. They could help him. But like hell, is he ever going to go ask? So what else, mm-hmm. What what is his alternative here? Well, he probably is worried that the New Republic might take Baby Yoda too because remember, Baby Yoda was being protected by someone. I have to think it's remnants of the old Republic and, you know, friends of the Jedi that were protecting Baby Yoda in the first place. So I'm not sure that the New Republic would even be happy that Mando has him. So he's got to be very careful about who he enlists to help him with here. And the fact that there's now a tracking beacon on the Razor's Crest, I think really poses a lot of danger for Mando and sets up the events to come. Um, Like that theory. Anything else you want to add? No, I just like that theory. It's a good theory. Okay, I have material here, and I'm curious to see your thoughts, because we kind of discussed a few of them already, but, okay. Point number one, appearance of a protocol droid teaching that class in a, you know, a C-3PO-ish British accent. 
lecturing us all about the geography of the uh, galaxy at large. How wonderfully nostalgic was that? It was incredible. It was wonderful to see. It was an absolute uh, delight and blast. You couldn't, I don't even know how much I would pay to be able to sit and uh, watch that class unfold, you know, with macaroons in hand to feed Baby Yoda and all that kind of way, it would have been great. Um, seeing lots of, you know, just throw off information, seeing the Aqualish appear, you know, from, from Ponda Baba originally back in the, in the Mos Eisley Cantina attacking Luke and Obi-Wan. Wonderful to see that species again. Seeing the exchange about how Coruscant was the capital of the Old Republic, but Chandrilla, the home of Mon Mothma, is now the capital of the New Republic was great to see, and it's in keeping with the lore, and it raises fun questions about how that occurred and how apparently that changes by the time we get to the most recent films. Seeing Star Wars speeder bikes with scout troopers on them, absolutely great. Seeing midichlorians, not as great, not as fun. Damn it, Favreau, why do you like those damn things? We'll see if he could ever justify them into my mind. Having cloning technology back and seeing its importance and in, in keeping with the lore and the legends about how much the Empire experienced with cloning technology, about how important it was for the Emperor to come back a couple different times in the past, um, was fun to see and be able to theorize about that. Seeing, and again, I'm using a bit of outer knowledge here just from my knowledge of the legends lore and from what's going to be confirmed in the later episode, but seeing that Moth Gideon has restarted the Dark Trooper project is just great. Dark Forces was one of my favorite video games back in the day from 1995, a Doom clone that had no right to be as good as it was in the sense that they built their own graphics engine, they designed some incredible lore and incredible characters, and made what was one of the early great Star Wars video games that started its own series of the Dark Forces and later Jedi Knight series. Uh, is great to have brought back, including particularly the character of Kyle Katarn from that game, who is massively important in the lore, and if you're bringing back Dark Troopers, you can bring back this, you know, Crix McDean, Han Solo, ultimately Jedi Master, Battle Master of Luke's Academy, close friend of Luke Skywalker, trainer of Mara Jade. There are legs here. Even General Rom Mach, the original creator of the Dark of the Dark Troopers, is a fun character from his foundations in the Clone Wars. His interest in uh, cybernetics and droid tech that he got from there. His lobbying to get droids to be more focused on the Empire against established elements from Old Republic officers that hated even the concept. Him coming in when the Dark, when the uh, Death Star was destroyed and getting that influence and support as a result, and bringing about these droid troopers that were heinously lethal and dangerous, was all fascinating. Until eventually, uh, a combination of the Rebel Alliance and Kyle Katarn was able to put it down, and as a result, banished the Emperor's faith in droid technology for pretty much the rest of the Empire's rule of the galaxy. All of that is interesting. All of that is great. And it's just wonderful you see with Favreau, like, kind of like you referenced with a Ray's hair in that one character, that he's able to plant these little seeds, maybe not even with full intent or full knowledge now of where he's going to go with him or where Disney would be comfortable with him going with him. But with him being willing to bring back aspects of the Legends lore, as much as it has been changed by the modern canon, as much as it's been left behind, as much as I think you described it before as a grab bag that Disney can select from when they deem it appropriate, it is a lot of fun, and it just leaves open so many doors to get great characters in. If Kyle Katarn and Jan Ors and Mara Jade appear on the screen as essentially like the representatives of the Jedi Order, uh, Jan Ors is a close friend of Kyle Katarn, not a Jedi, but still very important, that could be a wonderful way to do it, because, you know, presumably Luke is recreating the Jedi Order right now, but you can't have Mark Hamill show up right now, he wouldn't fit the age range as much, and it would suck to recast him. But if you bring in these characters who are established in the Legends as being early Jedi and early supporters of Luke's Temple, 
that could be a wonderful way of being a tie-in, of meeting other Jedi that are in this universe beyond the previously name-dropped Ashoka, Tan, Ashoka Tana. So these kind of moments really leave me hopeful uh, about what degree of the Legends lore that I understand, that I love, that's my background and childhood, could be brought into the present. However, ultimately, I have to pick a winner for nostalgic moment of the episode, and for me, again... If I could be a child sitting in that room sharing macaroons with Baby Yoda, watching a C-3PO droid lecture about the subject of the galaxy's geography, I would be in bliss. I was eating that up. I was loving it so much, and it really just tells me how much I would want to be in the war and in, in the lore in the world and experiencing it firsthand. Okay, Spencer, that is nostalgic moment of the episode. That wraps up our coverage of chapter 12 of the mandalorian i enjoyed it spencer as always a lot of fun to walk through the star wars universe with you thanks a lot for your participation here everybody go check out mangum reads if you have a chance check out mangum laughs if you have a chance or mangum talks hoops we've got a lot of podcasts on the mangum talks podcast channel for you to check out and if you have anything for us please contact us go to mangumtalks.com upper right hand corner contact us we read all of the comments i assure you and we may address your question on pod if it's relevant so Thanks, everybody, for listening. Enjoyed it, Spencer. I'll be back with you next week for Chapter 13. See you!